Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. I feel the need to introduce myself to you again. My name is Brian Smith. I'm one of the elders, the lead pastor here. Uh, it's been good to be gone for the last two weeks. Um, you know what's somewhat uh, perplexing is to be a pastor of a church, to be on vacation, to be able to stay. That's, that's a blessing. Most pastors feel like they have to get out of the vicinity, outside of driving distance in order to really take a break. I'm grateful for the team that we have here of staff and elders that I can be 15 minutes from here and not be bothered with the, the daily operations. We, we have a deep bench, as they say. Um, but it's interesting, you know, if you go to a, let's say you go to Whitey's and, and you notice uh, a teenager walks in in, in in street clothes and walks behind the counter and you get the sense that they're an employee of Whitey's but they're not, they're not working and everyone's looking like, what are you doing here? Well, the same thing sort of happens when you're a pastor of a church and you show up on a Sunday that you're not preaching. And, and perhaps the thought might go through some people's heads, if you're here, why don't you just preach? As if sermons just sort of magically happen, like my laundry. <clears throat> That's an ongoing joke. I'll, I'll, I can tell you about the magical laundry basket later if you want to uh, know more about that. But, uh, it, you know, the reason, and, and, it, and it did happen a couple of times while I was here the last two weeks, oh, I didn't think you were going to be here. And, and my thought was, where else would I be? Like, this is my church. This, you are my church, church family. I'm not a hireling. I'm not just an employee of the church. You're my church. And so, yeah, there's benefit to going to other churches, and there's been some other pastors that have come here on vacation, and I could probably do that, but you're my church, and so I just want to gather with my church and to listen to the preaching of our elders, and I'm so grateful for how Pastor Andy handled that last week and the week before that. And I do want to tell you with integrity that I don't, I don't give problem passages <laughs> to people. Uh, I planned my, my vacation about eight weeks ago and then plotted out where we were going to be in the last four to six weeks. Uh, I think Pastor Andy did a great job. Uh, that's an insanely unpopular uh, message for the world out there, and it was probably difficult for some people even within the church to hear that. And, you know, the thing about the day we live in is uh, that message is on the internet. It lives there forever. Uh, and, and so, Pastor Andy, thank you for being faithful to the text. I don't think he's in this service, but I thank him for being, uh, there he is right there. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for being faithful to the text. So, you know, when Paul wrote this, he, he, he sort of realized that the people that would have been hearing it read would have actually, for the most part, nodded in agreement with what he had just said in, in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Um, there were uh, not only religious people, Jews, that had been converted to Christianity, but there were also people that we would call moralizers or moralists people that believed in virtue outside of relationship with, with God. In fact, we have a society called good without God today. I mean, there are moralizers, moralists 
there are people that believe in virtue, uh, that, that, that uh, unvirtuous acts deserve judgment. Um, and, and Paul was writing Romans 1, 18 through 32, and stating truth. Uh, the, the Lord is going to judge the wicked. And, and that passage dealt specifically with sexual sin, specifically with the sin of homosexuality. And Paul was well aware that many in his church would be nodding right along until he got to this part in Romans 2, 1 through 5. And, and, and so this passage doesn't nullify what he said, but it sure brings it home. All right, so let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul said, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches in His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace, grace that you have extended to sinners like me. I pray, Jesus, that, that, that you would help us to constantly hold out the gospel who reminds us who we are, O oh man, and who you are, holy God. And I pray, Jesus, that this would transform our attitudes about people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. And before we move any further, I must acknowledge the laundry doesn't happen by magic. <laughs> Sometimes I do it. I'm kidding. I love you, lady. All right, so Paul says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Not hard to understand what Paul's saying, right? We don't have to, we don't have to dig into the Greek to understand what he's saying. He's saying you judge and yet you do the same things. You judge and you do the same things. He says, therefore. Now, now, again, what is it therefore? This is one of the rare occasions in which therefore actually looks forward, not backwards. That's interesting. So in light of God's judgment in verses 18 through 32, they therefore have no excuse for judging because they do the same things. So Paul has laid out all this sin of the wicked world, and then he says, therefore you have no excuse because you judge people and you do the same things. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, who is Paul speaking to? Who is you? You have no excuse. So, Paul uses this rhetorical device called a diatribe. A diatribe is a, is a method of teaching that takes an imaginary critic not real, not, he's not addressing any person in particular, just take an imaginary critic, an imaginary cynic, and then have a dialogue. 
question and answer so that the audience then hears the dialogue. It's not directed at the audience. It's a way of, of, of the instructor or the narrator, the writer or the speaker to deal with difficult issues without pointing fingers at specific people. Like, I know this doesn't apply to any of you, but let me just, pres- let me just take an imaginary figure, someone that might resist this concept, someone who might judge while they practice the same sins for which they judge. So he all of a sudden switches gears from railing against the wicked world, and now he goes into this diatribe. He, he's picked out of the crowd, this imaginary person that's sitting along, nodding along. Yeah, preach, Paul, preach. Yeah, come on, get him, God. Right, now he picks that person out of the crowd, and he goes to town. <clears throat> Now, Paul might have had pagan moralizers in mind. You know, there, there were secular moralists like Seneca. Seneca was not a Christian, but the early church wrote of Seneca as our own Seneca because he was such a moral man. He, he was such an upstanding man. He was salt of the earth. Good old boy is mo- what we might call him. Seneca or Plato or Epictetus. Okay? So, th- so these are Greek moralists. And and Paul might have had them in mind, the good without God crowd, right? The the people that uh, don't necessarily need to go to church, but, but but they would affirm and they would agree that God's judgment is deserved by certain people. But he wrote the letter to Jewish Christians. The the church in Rome was mostly Jewish converts. They had come from Jerusalem. They had heard the gospel when Peter preached. They heard uh, the the disciples speaking in foreign tongues. They heard it in their own language. Many who were saved were from Rome. So they were Romans, but they were Jews, and then they became Christian. And so now they're in Rome, and so Paul is dealing with mostly Jewish Christians, and part of the, part of the uh, focus of this letter was helping the Jew, was well, not helping, rebuking and, and calling these Jewish Christians to recognize that they're sinners in need of a Savior just like their Greek counterparts, their Roman counterparts. So he's writing to Jewish Christians. So I would say if I were to speculate, I would guess that Paul mostly has religious hypocrites in mind, not secular moralists, not Plato, not Seneca, but people within the church that were sort of going through the motions that would be nodding along, yes, God does, God ought to destroy those homosexuals. He, that, that, is, that is right, that is just, that is good. Go get them, God. But some of them were no better off than the rest of humanity against which they were cheering on the judgment of God. They were no better off. And so the you appears to be referring to religious hypocrites. As you read the rest of chapter 2, it becomes even more clear. He, it, beca- it begins... It becomes clear that Paul is speaking to Jews. 
These are people who boast in the law, he says in verse 23. But Gentiles look at their life and they stumble away from God because of them. What a tragedy to bear the name, to, to bear an association with God, but then to cause people to stumble away because of your hypocrisy. That's who Paul is talking to. They never dreamed that they would be subject to the same judgment as the world, that they themselves are condemned, but that's what Paul says. They're blind to their real spiritual condition, but God is not blind. You know that, right? You, you know that. that, that God is fully aware of the condition of your heart, and God was fully aware of the condition of their hearts. God knows them, and God knows us, and God is judge. They judge people for adultery, and yet they do the very same things, Paul says, when they lust. That's what Jesus said. He, he spoke to the Pharisees. He says, you've heard, it, you've heard it said that whoever commits adultery with us, uh, you know, uh, what is it? adulterous sin. He says, you do the same thing when you lust in your hearts. You've heard it said, do not murder. And yet, it's the same thing when you hate your brother. Jesus said that. And so these, these moralists, they, they, they judge the world out there for adultery, and then they do the same thing when they lust. But what do they reason? How do they convince, what do they convince themselves? As long as I don't do the deed, then I'm not guilty. I'm too good to be judged because I don't do the big sins. I, I don't do the big things that God should punish, and so I'm okay. I'm all right with God. I don't think that Paul was insinuating that these moralists were engaging in homosexual sin, but rather that they were engaging in sexual sin, in lust, perhaps in emotional affairs, perhaps in messing around. You do the very same things, yet you judge people. You're no better than the rest of humanity. The self-righteous, says Kent Hughes, have an intrinsic blindness to their own faults. They don't see what they're doing as sin. The self-righteous are blinded to their own sin. It's like David. You know the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan comes to David and says, let me present a, a scenario to you, David. Uh, a rich man takes from a poor man his only lamb in order to sacrifice it. And David gets enraged, and in a fit of fury, he demands that this man be put to death. Look at what it says in 2 Samuel 12, 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And what is Nathan's response? You are the man. You are the man. David, David should have had the awareness and the conviction 
to say to Nathan, oh my gosh, that sounds a lot like what I did when I slept with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed on the line of battle. That sounds an awful like what I did. I deserve to die. God, forgive me. But David was blind to his own sin. And when you're blind, you're willfully blind. You know? You know you sinned. You know you sinned. But you try to silence your conscience. And you try to justify by saying, well, it's not that bad. What I do is not as bad as what they do. The problem is that that doesn't work all the time. And so we try to add to the justification that we stand with God. I stand with God and I get really self-righteous about this sin that I don't struggle with. And I'll be bold about it. I'll be loud about it. Why? Because my conscience convicts me about my own sin and I don't want to deal with it. So to atone for my own sin, I get really self-righteous, super self-righteous about standing with God on the things that he does condemn. Now, what should we do? Not speak the truth? No, Paul makes it clear what we should do, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Repent. Repent. Paul uses the term preso or practice. You practice the same things. Practice means to go on and on and on habitually in a sin. You, you, you do this as a lifestyle, and you don't have regret. You, there's no real turning away. You just keep sinning in the same way. John says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Christians sin. Truth or, or false? True or false? Christians sin. Now, people accuse Christians of hypocrisy because we sin. It's not right. Our sin affirms why we're Christian in the first place. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I'm being sanctified my whole life, and Jesus continues to reveal sin. And I continue to repent. So the issue is not that we sin. The issue is that we practice sinning. We keep sinning. We live in the sin without repenting of sin, without turning, without putting anything in, our place, in, the, in, the, in the path of sin so that we would turn from it. That's what Paul and that's what John are condemning. A person who is born again is not going to make a practice of sinning. Now in verse 2, Paul acknowledges that, that God's judgment will fall upon the wicked, just as he described in verse one, uh, chapter 1. God's judgment is going to fall on the wicked. He says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It's like saying, yes, we all know that God judges those who practice those things. Granted, yes, we don't deny that. This is not a softening of that message, that God is going to judge the wicked of the world. It doesn't soften that. He says, granted, but then he continues, verse 3, Do you suppose, O oh man? Now, 
when the Apostle Paul says, oh man, that term is loaded. Mere man. Who do you think you are? Right? You are just a man, is what he's saying here. You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you, and you is emphatic, that you, moralizer, religious hypocrite, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now that is ironic because these people rightly affirm God's judgment. They are able to discern that God's judgment is going to fall upon the wicked of the earth. The irony is that they don't see that they are part of it. That they will be judged themselves. Christian hypocrisy is a tragedy. I don't think that I can refer to any uh, New Testament scripture that refers to Gentile hypocrisy could be out there, but I think the Gentile experience of God and Jesus was too fresh to, to really get to a place of hypocrisy. Certainly by the mid-third century, when it became the, the Roman official religion, you start to see religious hypocrisy even among Gentiles. But the Jews had lots of experience millennia of experience with God and with religion, with morals, and, and with God's will and God's ways and God's law. And so they became, well, certainly long before Paul wrote, they were religious hypocrites. Jesus told them that. He, he spoke that to the religious leaders. But by now, by now, Christians have as much history with God and with the law and the gospel as the Jews did, I don't think it's a stretch to call this Christian hypocrisy now, right? Christian hypocrisy is right up there with Jewish hypocrisy with let's condemn, let's be loud about these things, vocal about these things, but we're going to ignore what's going on in here. So there's some irony. They know his decrees. They know what's right. They know his ways. And they are, they are proud to proclaim them. Only problem is that it's going to fall on their heads. Christian hypocrites or religious hypocrites today are convinced that they occupy the moral high ground and that they're beyond God's judgment because they stand in agreement with what God says, they place themselves outside of scrutiny. I, I, don't, need to, I, don't, I don't need to explore my heart, my ways, my thoughts, my, my motives. I don't need to explore those things. I don't need to acknowledge that the things that I do are sin. I don't need the gospel anymore. I'm outside of that because I've done some kind of religious thing. Uh, I've prayed a prayer, I've been baptized, or I'm a member of a church, or my father is a, a pastor, or my uncle's a, a, a deacon, or my mom led the choir, or whatever. I'm good, and I'm outside of God's judgment. But look, Paul makes it clear how we ought to deal with sinners as a church. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Just notice how he lumps them together, right? It just flows off of his tongue. Like we want to say sexually immoral and then greedy and gossips and divisive and gluttonous, right? Sexually immoral, the things I do, right? He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with them, Okay, let's go on. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul's realistic. All right? If you're not going to associate with sexually immoral, or greedy, or swindlers in the world, you'd have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Who is Paul talking about? Us. Us. Or greed or idolater, or reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Look, not even to eat as such a one. You got the gusto to, to take Paul seriously on that? To be like, look man, if we're going to have a conversation, I'm going to be preaching the gospel to you. I'm going to be uh, asking you to repent of your sin of greed. Asking you to repent of your sin of gossip, asking you to repent of your sin of drunkardness, asking I'm not we're not gonna eat a meal as if everything's okay. Because you're in sin. And I and I've I I'm I love you enough to to call you to repentance. Do you have that within you? To not even eat with such a one? He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not is it not those inside the church? Whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Whoa, Paul. Whoa. So how do we how do we how do we deal with sin in the world? Outside the church, we go to people with the gospel. We don't shrink back from the truth. God's judgment is going to fall on the wicked. Repent. You need Jesus. I'll go to lunch with you if it allows me to share the gospel. I'll, I'll build a relationship with you. I'll work with you. I'll love you within the church. We ought to be more convicted about the purity of the church than the purity of the world. Can I get an amen on that? We ought to be more convicted about our own sin than we are about the sins of the world. This, the world has fallen. The world is going to act like sinners because that's who they are. But woe to us within the church who bear the name of brother, who bear the name of Christ, who want to associate with God and with Jesus, who live as if we are lost. Right? Paul warns us that this is presumptuous and dangerous. In verse 4 he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The reason that God has been patient with you, again, who are we talking to? Moralist. Okay, we have to remember, who's, who's Paul talking to? Religious hypocrite. Moralist. The reason that God is patient with them and doesn't squash them immediately is not because he's tolerant of their sin. And it's not because their sin fails to rise to the occasion of God's wrath. 
Why is God patient towards sinners inside and outside the church? To give them time to repent. To give them time to repent. So that they would recognize their sin, call out to Jesus for salvation, and be forgiven and given eternal life. Do you take God's patience and kindness for granted? Do you reason that, well, since God hasn't exposed my sin, hasn't squashed me because of my sin, He never will? If you do, you presume upon the riches of His kindness. To presume is to show contempt, to look down upon, to minimize, marginalize, treat indifferently. People who keep on sinning, especially those who know enough to judge other people, they are playing with fire. I had an old retired command sergeant major tell me when I was in high school, junior ROTC, uh, don't mistake kindness for weakness, O oh, church. Don't mistake God's kindness for weakness. Don't presume that you have years or decades to get right with the Lord. Every day, someone dies doing something incredibly routine, like driving to the grocery store or driving home from church. Don't presume upon His kindness. Today is a day of repentance. Amen? Unfortunately, Paul lays out a sober warning in verse 5 because Paul is a realist. He knows human nature. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, who is Paul writing to? Religious hypocrites, moralizers, people who have never asked Jesus with sincerity to forgive their sins. We need to be clear about this because this is not saying Christian, saint, born again child of God, that God is storing up wrath for you. No, God's wrath was atoned for in full with Jesus on the cross. So how do we make sense of this? Perhaps the simplest resolution is that those in the church in Paul's day and today who are guilty of this, who would judge people without repenting, would, would keep on sinning, were never in Christ to begin with. Whatever experience they had was not a conversion experience because the Bible tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who is God's wrath being stored up for? Paul says... Your hard and impenitent heart, that is not describing a Christian. It's, re, it's describing a religious hypocrite or a moralizer. Why is that? Because the very first thing that saints do, and I use that in the term of New Testament, that's the term that the New Testament ascribes to born-again followers of Jesus 
saints, the very first thing that saints do is repent of sin. We recognize the fullness of our sin and we repent. And because we repent and because we are constantly reminded of the gospel, we tend not to judge. And when it it becomes evident that we are judging, what do we do? We repent. That's what we do. Dogs bark, fish swim, fire burns, and Christians repent. It's in our new nature. It's in our new heart. Our hearts are not hard and impenitent. They are soft like flesh and repentant. And they don't, they don't bury their heads in the sand hoping, well, if I just don't read the Bible, if I just don't come to church, if I don't listen to any Christian worship music, then I'll never be convicted. No, instead we do the opposite. We do like David did in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. This very moment, Christians right now are saying, God, how is he speaking to me? Search my heart. Is it possible I'm doing this? Search my heart, O God, and search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the continual prayer of a born again follower of Jesus Christ. Slow to judge, though sometimes we do fail in that regard. Slow to judge, quick to judge ourselves. One of the things that Pastor Andy said that struck me last Sunday was, was how Paul sort of elevates his rhetoric. He, he steps it up. He begins with the sexual immorality of lesbianism, of women who give up natural relations with men. He begins there because that was less socially acceptable in the Roman church or the Roman society than male homosexuality. So he begins, he, he sort of hooks them like, Women who give up natural relations with men and and lay with women, they deserve God's judgment. And the people in the church were listening. They were like, yeah, yeah. And then he goes to the more socially acceptable sexual immorality of male homosexuality. And they must, wait a second. Now you're meddling. Now watch, he does the same thing, right? Maybe there were some secularists that were like, male homosexuality, is that really all that bad? Now, he's got the whole church nodding up and down, and then he's like, do you suppose, oh man, that you who judge? So we're nodding up and down, yeah. Romans 1, 18 through 32, God's just judgment's gonna fall on the wicked. And then he ramps up, he elevates the rhetoric once again. Do you suppose, oh man, that you who judge? within the church, and yet you practice the same things, that you're going to escape God's judgment? Whoa, Paul. Whoa. We were with you when you were talking about sins out there. And I can just hear Paul saying, yep, and now I want to deal with sins in here. That's really what I'm writing you about. I want to deal with sins in 
here in the church. When it comes to sexual immorality, it's tempting for us, for our minds to go places, to go to sins that we don't struggle with. Homosexuality, adultery, prostitution. Yeah, God's judgment falls on the wicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But folks, there's a cancer in our church. There's a cancer in our church. It's socially acceptable in the world, and for the most part, it is kept silent in the church. We're like ostriches when it comes to this cancer of sexual immorality within the church. But folks, we can no longer be content. You know, Pastor Matt months ago said, you want to get out of James and into Romans, it's not going to be easier, right? We, we can't be content to read Paul's words about sexual immorality, about judging the sexual sin outside the church while ignoring sexual sin inside the church. Pornography is a cancer in our church. Pornography is a cancer within our church, and it must be dealt with. Now, I don't always trust statistics, especially when it comes to supposedly Christian men being honest about the taboo sin of pornography. About eight years ago, Proven Man Ministries asked the Barna Group, uh, who, who do all kinds of surveys and polls, they're, they're, they're good at what they do, Proven Man Ministries asked Barna Group to do a survey on Christian men and pornography. Now, eight years ago, what has happened with technology in the last eight years? Has, has technology made it more difficult or less difficult to access pornography? Less difficult, right? Eight years ago, you may not have even had a smartphone, but you have one now, right? Eight years ago, there was no TikTok, no Instagram Reels, no Facebook Reels that were gateways into this. There are now. So do we think that if it was 54% of supposedly Christian men view pornography monthly eight years ago, do we think that number has gone down or up? I think it's gone up. Now, again, I don't always trust statistics because, one, it's not clear what's a Christian man, right? Another man came back and, and said he believes that that percentage comes down about 10% for, people, for men who are actively committed to a church, so let's just say we were at 55%, now we're at 45%, but again, has it gone down or up in the last eight years? I would think it goes up. Now the, the options were, well that 54, 54%, 55% was view pornography every month. Now what I know about men is that we tend to minimize our issues. And so given an option, I, I view pornography every day, every week, every month, uh, a couple times a year, not at all, right? The, the, the average man is going, to, is going to take his pencil over the one that's true and then go, to, and then, and then go up one. So if 55% of people, men are saying within the church that I view pornography monthly, what about those who in reality view it every other month or every six weeks? But is, does it even matter if it's every six weeks or six months 
right? We have a problem. There's a cancer in the church. The takeaway is that a majority, if not most, men in the church struggle with pornography to some degree or another. And we have to deal with it. We nod our heads up and down and agree that God's judgment is going to fall on the wicked. And we judge those, we condemn those outside the church for sexual sin, while a majority of the men in our church are struggling to some degree with sexual sin themselves. Hypocrites. Now, I I no longer get surprised. I'm no longer shocked when a man comes to me, no matter how old they are or young they are, no matter how mature or immature, no matter their experience, no matter what they have done for the church, I no longer get surprised or shocked when a man comes to me and confesses pornography use. It's disappointing, it's sin, it has to be dealt with, but it's no longer shocking. In fact, I no longer ask a man if he has to fight pornography. I ask him to what degree he is seeing victory, to what degree he is being faithful to fight his flesh. Now look, it is something that can be forgiven and lives and marriages can be redeemed, but only when it's dealt with. Pornography does not just go away. That's the lie that men believe. I can quit whenever I want. Then why haven't you? Why haven't you? It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't hurt anybody. Lies. It's killing families. It makes men weak and passive. Because who wants to sit at the head of their table and say, open your Bibles, family, and let's pray together and let's worship when last night I looked at pornography? It makes men passive and weak. It's killing families in our church and in our nation and it doesn't just go away. And I want you to take that from me because I know. In 2004, I was finally broken of my addiction to pornography. And I came to my wife. She knew that I had been struggling with it through college. I I don't know what prompted me. I don't think I was a Christian at the time. Like you, Cecil, the Lord intervened in my addiction before he saved me. I give him glory regardless of, of the timing or how he did it. But I was finally broken of my addiction to pornography, and I just set Kelly down on the, on the couch one afternoon. I think it was a Tuesday afternoon. And she had just come back from taking Kennedy to the doctor, to the hospital, to, to get cancer treatment. And, I just, and, and she comes home, and I confess, I know that you know this is a problem, but you don't know to what degree. And I just laid it all out there, the frequency, what, what I had been doing, and we had to call over my childhood pastor um, to come and help us. It was incredibly difficult for my wife. We, we brought our pastor over, and he helped us develop a plan of reconciliation. We didn't just brush this under. It wasn't just like a cathartic experience. Okay, I've, I've confessed to you. Now we're all good. No, we made a plan of reconciliation, which involved me sleeping in the other room for about six months and committing to full transparency and accountability with her and other men. And I went to see a Christian counselor for about six months. But I can tell you that on the other side of this, 
There is hope. There is life. But you have to deal with it. And it's for that reason, men, that I'm inviting all of you to a rally that I'm calling You Are Not Alone, August 18th, 2023. Now, why rally men of Wildwood together? First of all, first of all our enemy, the devil, thrives on men who are isolated. And the lie, whether you're a man or a woman, is that if anyone ever finds out about this sin, you will be rejected. And so you have to fight this by yourself. That's a lie, and I want to be abundantly clear. You men are not alone. You are not alone. Second, if you're not struggling with this, if you can say, this is not a problem for me, praise the Lord, we need you there. You're exactly the kind of man that needs to come along the men who do struggle and say, you can do it. And I'm here for you. And to imagine putting this call out and for there to be men who rather than feel compassion and a call to help would rather sit in judgment of other men who do struggle. And third, we ought to be fighting pornography whether we're tempted with it or not. You know that our forefathers, whether they owned slaves or not, whether they wanted slaves or not, they fought against slavery. Christian Men in the church and women fought against slavery. It was a solidly uh, ingrained institution in our country, and yet the church says we're not going to stand for it. To imagine that pornography that's been around for maybe 50, 60 years is so ingrained that there's nothing we can do about it, that's nonsense. So whether we struggle with it or not, we ought to be fighting against the evil of pornography. Okay, I'm in. Great, you had me. You got me. Why wait till August? I know men. I know the excuses that men will make to avoid doing something uncomfortable. Number one, the calendar. Most men that I know do not plan 10 months, 10 months out. All right? So I deliberately planned this. It was... It was, and I even took into account football season. <laughs> really, it was scheduled, it, this morning it was scheduled for August 25th. And then I looked at the high school football schedule from this year and realized that the first game was, was that equivalent Friday, and I want to remove every obstacle. Ten months from now, ten months from now, I hope that you are circling that, writing that down, that date in which you are being called to gather. Put it on your calendar, and everything else should, revol should, should adjust or accommodate to that. August 18th, 2023. The other thing is that, once again, I know men. And I know from years of addiction that I am much more prone to deal with something, to be honest and to be open about it, when I can point back to sincere effort to resist it, to fight against it, to put it to death. And so, man, I'm giving you 10 months to put your flesh to death. So that even if you can't show up on August 18th and say, the last time I looked at pornography was October, what's today? The 15th. 
I know it's a, I, I'm hof- hopefully no one's looking at porn today. Though, even if you can't say, I have been porn-free for 10 months, but you can say with integrity, I have resisted, I have fought, I have committed, I have sought help, I have fought this flesh, I've put it to death, you can stand in front of, 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 of the men of our church and say, I'm, fight, I'm, I'm with you in this fight. I'm giving you 10 months. Now, a word to spouses It's very possible that you might experience tonight or this week or in the next 10 months something that my wife experienced 18 years ago, uh, and it could feel hopeless. Could be the worst news that you have ever heard. You might have been wishing that this was not a problem for your spouse, only to find out that it has been. And I want to tell you that there is hope of reconciliation and hope of restoration when you deal with this sin. Your marriage can be more beautiful, can be stronger when you persevere through this. That's been our experience, that's been my wife and I's experience, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the help of your church, it can also be your experience. Now, spouses, you may not want to know this about your husband. You you know, ignorance is bliss sort of thing. But I can promise you that if pornography use is happening in your home, it is already affecting your marriage, whether you know it or not. It, 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 It creates lazy, passive, cold, distant people. The question is not if pornography impacts a person or a marriage or a family, but to what extent, for how long, and what will you do about it? So we're pulling together some resources for spouses who get this news. Our counseling ministry has been chewing on this. I just want to say to you, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Now, notice that I said spouses and not wives. The reality is that it may be husbands who hear from their wife that this applies to them. I I, I recognize this is not a man's only issue, that lots of pornography use is, is by women. About a third of pornography use is by women. Now, our men's conference is not for women, but our women's ministry and our biblical counseling ministry are considering what resources and what support do women in our church need when they are the ones who are consuming pornography. Final word of caution here. Four things I want you to consider as you think about addressing this with your spouse. Number one, pray. Pray for your spouse's heart and pray for divine timing on when to talk about this. If it's a concern for you, spouse, don't come in hot. Pray. Pray for the right time. Give your spouse the opportunity to submit to the Lord's conviction. Number two, commit to telling the whole truth. 
Nothing is worse than having this cathartic experience. You're coming clean. You're, you're, you're telling your spouse what you've done, and, and then you're making progress forward, and then the next day or the next week or the next month, and you have to come back and say, I wasn't honest about this. Commit to telling the whole truth. Third, seek help from an elder or a connect group leader or a Christian mentor, whether it's just asking for advice or asking for their presence. Number four, and finally, own it. Pornography is sin. Do not try to justify it. Do not try to minimize it. It is sexual immorality. It is a betrayal of your spouse and of your God. And trust me, it's a lot better when the offending party takes initiative to own their sin. Church, what the Lord has called us to in taking the gospel across the street and around the world of every member of missionary is never going to come to fruition as long as we are hiding our heads in the sand, as long as we are condemning sexual sin in the world, but embracing it or ignoring it within. The gospel calls people to repentance. How can we go out and call people to repentance when we reject the call ourselves? I want to close with the comforting words of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, will you confess your sins, whether they are sexual or otherwise? Perhaps sexual sins is not something you struggle with, and I would just caution you not to sit in a place of judgment over those who are. Maybe you have a sin that the Lord has convicted you, brought to your mind that you need to lay down, that you need to submit to him. And my question is, will you do that? I, want to, I know it's 1021. I know it's late. We try not to go this late. But I don't want to miss this opportunity. The altar is open. Perhaps the Lord has pricked your heart for you to lay down some kind of sin that you've been holding on to. You've been, you're guilty. You've been judging people outside the church for their sin while minimizing and normalizing your own sin, it will not stand before the Lord. I invite you to repent. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would move in us and among us. Help us to honor you. Help us to draw near to you. I pray, Jesus, that you would cause us to repent of sin. Help us to hear the gospel that Jesus Christ bore our penalty on the cross to give us new life, to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, help us to remember who we are and whose we are. I pray, Jesus, that you would rid us of the sexual immorality of pornography so rampant in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings. 
on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.